Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We've uh, been going through Matthew chapter 18, and it deals with the childlikeness of the believer. But as we come to this section of Scripture this morning, verses 15 through 20, in this uh, incredible gospel that we've been studying, it's a very, uh, you might say, informative part of Scripture, but it's also a very crucial portion of the Word of God as it relates to the church. And so we want to make sure that we uh, uh, just, as we delve into this section of Scripture, that we understand not only what it's saying, but how we can apply it to our own lives and to the body of Christ here at Grace Bible Church. So follow along as I read our text for this morning. won't be getting through all this this morning, but we'll work our way through it in the next couple weeks. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, well, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth, about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now this passage deals with the confrontation of a sinning brother or sister within the body of Christ. Um, So it's a very important text as we look at it. And we have to pay careful attention to what it's saying to us. And remember here, who's speaking is is Jesus Christ himself. So we should pay extra attention. It's all God's word. But when Christ is speaking, we need to make sure that we understand exactly what he's saying to our hearts. And he speaks in such a way as that it demands a response from us as the body of Christ. He's not just giving us some information. He's giving us a command. Uh, The Bible teaches us that we have been saved onto, the Bible says, holiness, or we've been saved for sanctification. Um, We've been saved to have purity in our lives as Christians. That's the goal for which God is bringing us to himself, and that that continues day and day. Um, as we go throughout our Christian life. It's not once you're saved, then you're perfect in every way in your uh, practice. You are in your position before God. That's an important point. Our position before God is one of, of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But our practice has a long way to go in most of our lives. And so God is continuing through his spirit and through his word and through the body of Christ. He's continuing to mold us and to shape us into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You can't read the scripture, really, beloved, whether it's even in the Old Testament or the New Testament, without being overwhelmingly convinced that God seeks the holiness of his people. That's what he desires. Um, God is not content when there's disobedience among his people. You see that throughout the Old Testament. You even see that throughout the New Testament. I think Peter sums it up great in 1 Peter 1.16 where he says, Be holy, for I am holy. That's what the Lord says. That's the desire of God for his people. And if it says that in the word of God that he desires that, then it must be lived out in our lives. So if God is concerned about the holiness of his people and the holiness of the church in general for the sake of his reputation, then we should be concerned about it. We should be equally concerned about it because we're his representatives here on earth, are we not? That's what we're called to do. The, the problem today in a lot of churches is they're preaching a certain message from the pulpit that speaks of holiness and purity and what, how to live and all these things, but when it comes down to the practicality in people's lives, they kind of look the other way. <laughs> so you have certain information coming out of pulpits and going into the ears of people, but as soon as they walk out the doors of the church, in a lot of churches, most churches, I would say, um, they're never addressed again. Uh, there are certain things that, that are evident in people's lives that are simply not honoring to the Lord. And when those things happen, most people tend to just look the other way. So while there's no tolerance maybe in most churches about sin, you don't hear pastors, I mean, well, today you do sometimes, but for the most part, pastors, as they preach and teach the Word of God in most churches as they're teaching God's Word, are not encouraging people to run out and sin. They're encouraging people to refrain from sin. They're encouraging people to lives of purity and holiness. And yet, what happens, there's not a lot of tolerance for unholiness in the pulpit of a lot of churches, but when it comes down to the body of Christ and in the pew, well, then all of a sudden, well, that's none of my business. And we just turn our head the other way. And see, that's not pleasing, that's not honoring to God. And what has happened over the course of history in most churches is they hear a certain message from the pulpit, but then people look at the people in the pew and they see something totally different. There's a hypocrisy there. And that's not honoring to God. And eventually what happens is when that kind of thing is going on, when there's a certain message being taught, but it's not being enforced, it's not being reinforced in the lives of people, what happens is, is that preaching loses its power because it's not effective. It's not good enough just to tell people what God's word says to do, we're to follow that up and make sure that they're doing it. And that flies in the face of our society today. I know that. I understand that. That's uncomfortable for me even to say that. 
But that's really what the Word of God teaches. And that's what the Lord is saying here. We can't have a church where we proclaim holiness, but nothing is ever done to make sure that holiness is being wrought out in the lives of the people that are part of that body. There's too many people separating preaching from reality. So they go and they hear a certain message and then they go and live like the devil. Well, that's not right. There's something wrong there. And in most churches today, I would say, that most church members aren't really concerned about the person next to them in the pew. They're just not. Um, at least not to the degree where they would actually confront that person over something in their life that they see as dishonoring to the Lord. Because we live in a society that says, no, no, you know, that's none of your business. You just focus on what God has you to focus on. You worry about yourself. And people get the idea that the Bible is, is nice and we all believe the same thing and we fight for the authority of Scripture and the inerrancy and everything, but we don't ever implement what we teach. So the world looks at that and they say, man, what a hypocritical bunch of people. So there's a tremendous lack, I would say, of integrity a lot of times in the lives of people within Christendom, within the broader church. And while they affirm the Bible and all that it says, they affirm what is sinful, they don't get to the point where they're actually enforcing holiness in the lives of people. And that's what this speaks of this morning. It speaks of a portion of Scripture that talks about dealing with sin in the body of Christ. You can call it correction. You can call it discipline. I mean, most churches today, if you went to most churches even here in the Bay Area and said, do you practice church discipline or church correction? Most people say, what are you talking about? And these are evangelical churches. In other words, you can't go around sticking your nose in other people's business. Who do you think you are? You can't go around and say that, you know, hey, you're, you, you point out to somebody, and say, well, that's not right, you're sinning. You shouldn't be doing that. Who are you to say that? That's the mentality. And then they quickly pull out Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged, which is totally ripped out of context. And that's the kind of syndrome that we're living in today within Christianity. You know what, I'm going to take care of myself and you take care of yourself, and we're not going to meet anywhere in the middle. Because it gets too sticky. It gets too uncomfortable. And everybody becomes almost a law unto themselves. And we're all independent little church members running around. That's not what God called us to be. He called us to be the body of Christ. He calls us together to care for one another to edify one another, to build each other up. And when we don't get involved in the lives of others within the body of Christ even, when we don't do that, even though sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes it's not fun, it's, it's, it's sticky, it's, you know, you're getting into other people's business sometimes. And it can be perceived in a certain way. What happens when you let all that go down by the wayside, then you've really lost the purity of the church. 
I know of one really well-known church down in Southern California, just gone through some financial problems, and they actually are kind of trying to restart themselves. And they brought in a new worship leader, and the new worship leader went to this several hundred member choir, like four or five, six hundred people, and said, if we're going to do this right, I need you to sign this statement that says that you will not support or be a participant in any homosexual activity. I mean, this is a well-known church. And there was people in the congregation that were up in arms over this. And you look at their church today on TV, and there's not a several hundred people in the choir. Definitely less than a hundred. But I'm thinking, hmm, what happened? There was a church that was tolerating sin within the body of Christ. Just looking the other way. We just got to accept everybody. We don't want to get involved in other people's problems. Well, what happens is the church suffers. The purity of the church suffers. The Bible is very strong when it talks about dealing with sin in a lot of different places. There's Matthew 18, there's Acts 5, there's 1 Corinthians 5, there's 2 Corinthians 3. You have those there. Just turn over to Acts 5. And this just gives you a little maybe a little snippet of how God feels about sin among his people. And we're probably familiar with this, Acts 5. I mean, the question we want to ask this morning is, how do we get people to be holy? (laughs) To understand that holiness is an important thing within the ranks of the church. You can't just preach holiness and then be indifferent to what people are doing, that would be like telling your child, you know what, take out the trash, and then watch as he continues to sit there and play his his, uh, video game. And you ask him again, and he just continues to watch the video game, and he play the video game, and he never obeys you. Eventually, you're going to have to reinforce the statement of what you're asking him to do. Well, in Acts 5, we, we see a little bit of godly pressure on individuals when it comes to dealing with sin within the body of Christ. In Acts 5, look at verse 1 with me. Just follow along. I'll read this. It's just an account that happened in the New Testament church. It says in verse 1, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge... He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, you have to understand, back in those times in the early church, when you would bring your offering to uh, the church, you would actually bring it up and you would lay it at the apostles' feet. Can you imagine if we did that today? (laughs) Okay, come on up and bring your offering. You know, we don't do that. We clandestine, put it in a little thing, and then we put it in an envelope, or we fold the check 50 times, or the bill, or whatever it is, and slip it in the plate as it goes by, or whatever. Back then, they'd bring it right down to the front. Well, what's going on here? 
It says that this man, Ananias and his wife Sapphira, had a piece of property, and they basically asked God to help them sell this piece of property. Maybe they came into an economic situation, whatever, and, and they, they, they basically wanted his assistance in selling this property. And apparently, what has happened was Ananias, and they, they went before the Lord, and they said, oh, we're, we're going to give this, the proceeds to you. That was their own volition. They did that. God didn't demand that of them. They just did that on their own accord. And, you know, it's kind of like sometimes in our own personal lives, we make deals with God. God, you just get me out of this, man. Lord, Lord I'll, I'll be at church every week, or I'll do this, or I'll, you know, and then we renege on it. Okay, it's that kind of a situation here. People were coming and they were giving, it says, to the Lord. And they vowed to give to the Lord all of it for whatever reason. They didn't have to do that, but that's what they said they would do. And so they ended up selling the property. And I want you to focus here what happens next. Remember, this is a, a service. This is, you know, they're, they're having a, what you'd call a church service. Verse 2, And with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Some deception involved. Verse 3, But Peter, who was standing there, said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? In other words, nobody's asking you to do this. You made this commitment of your own free volition to the Lord. You promised that you would give this to God. And now you're holding back a portion of it. See, it's not on the giving. That's not the sin here. It's not that he didn't give it all. He, he, He didn't have to give any of it if he didn't want But he made a vow, he made a commitment to the Lord to give to him all of this, and then he held back some of it. And so Peter correctly points out here that, you know what, you are lying. Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? God wasn't there waiting for your land. He doesn't need your land. He doesn't need your money. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And you're thinking, well, what's the big deal? You know, he gave most of it, probably. He kept a little bit for himself. I mean, it's God so stingy that he demands all of it? No, God is so holy that he expects to take you at your word. (laughs) So when they said, hey, if this sells, we're giving it to God. And smugly, they walked down the aisle and put probably a pretty large offering at the apostles' feet, thinking they're going to get a slap on the back or a high five or, hey, way to go, man, what a, what a blessing. And Peter, obviously, filled with the Spirit himself, was able to see what's going on and pointed it out right there in front of everybody. Pointed it out what was happening. It says, it says, you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. And when Ananias heard these words, look at this. He fell down and breathed his last. 
I mean, can you imagine? Right there in the service, the guy comes down and puts a big offering at the apostles' feet, and everybody's like, wow, look at all that money. That's pretty, you know, and Peter confronts him. What are you trying to do here? You're lying to God. God doesn't take that lightly. As a matter of fact, it says that when he heard those words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died there on the spot. That's how serious God takes sin. Verse 5, it says, And their great fear came upon all those who heard of it. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) I, I think so. Verse 6, the young man rose and they wrapped him up right there in front of everybody and they carried him out and they buried him. Verse 7, it says, after an interval of about three hours, that kind of gives you an indication of the length of their services. So don't complain when, you know, we're, we're, I'm running 60 minutes here, okay, you know, in my message. Three hours, beloved, and they're still going at it. They had somebody die in the service. I mean, if we had somebody die in our service, I think... Probably just out of respect that we would stop, you know, and, and, and pray or I don't know what. They just kept going. Wrapped the guy up, took him out, group went out and buried him, came back. Three hours later, still going on, here comes his wife. Not even knowing what happened. She walks in the church and Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, that was that. That's right. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And it says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I mean, stop and think about that. Just for simply lying to God? The sin here was not with the giving once again. It was with the idea that they actually lied to God. It says to the Holy Spirit. They thought, look at us. I'm going to give this big offering we were able to sell the property, and yeah, you know, we know we promised it all, but we're just going to give a portion. Now, would you say that Peter was confrontive? <laughs> I would say that. I mean, can you imagine if I walked down and I walked over to a brother or sister here in this church and said, look, you know, I understand that you got this going on in your life and it's not honoring to God. And you know what? You need to repent. I don't think many of you would be on my side if I did something like that. You would be, how rude. How obnoxious is that? Who is he to do something like that? That is wrong. He embarrassed them. Right here in the middle of the service, two people die. And God is conveying his attitude towards sin very early on in the church. 
By the way, look down at verse 13. This is an interesting verse. I wonder what the church growth movement does with this verse. It says, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Oh, that church? I ain't going to that church, man. Two people died in their service last week. Because sin was found out. I mean, can you imagine that? I think true believers would perk up a little bit if something like that happened. Why? Because they were serious about sin. Just as God is serious about sin. Now, when you stop and you think about this, you say, well, it's different today. Is it really? I mean, it's still his church. We're still his people. I don't see anything in the Bible that says, okay, well, you know, in, in the, the 20th, 21st century, whatever, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change my attitude towards sin, and I'm just going to kind of lower the bar so that the doors can be thrown open wide and the net be thrown wide and everybody can be welcomed into my church. I don't see him saying that anywhere in Scripture. God hasn't changed his view of sin. And he's taken his authority as the leader of the church, and he's put it into the hands of those who make up the church. And he says, I'm no longer there to confront this, but you know what? This is up to you now. You carry this on. You represent me in and through the church, just as if I were there. And so in a way, we're all the apostles, modern-day apostles, you might say, today, who are called to confront sin. I mean, I'm sure God does still today take people out early because of sin in their life. I'm sure he does. He may not do it in this same fashion, but I'm sure there are people who die, some Christians who are basically under the hand of discipline from the Lord because they're not living for him. Heaven may still interject itself as a supernatural agent in the cleansing and purity of the church. We don't know. But I think most of this purging of the church, God has entrusted that to the ministry of the Spirit of God through His Word among His people. That's how it's to take place today for the most part. But the point, very simply, as far as introduction is, is that it has to be dealt with. God doesn't turn a blind eye to sin in any of our lives. Now remember, just to review, this is a chapter that focuses on the childlikeness of the believer. And we've seen this as we've gone through this. You have to enter the child as, uh, enter the kingdom as a little child. We saw that in verses 3 and 4. We saw in verses 5 through 9 that we are protected as children. Last time we were in Matthew, we looked at verses 10 through 14, and it shared that we have to be cared for as children. And now in verses 15 to 20, he says not only that, but you have to be corrected as children. You have to be disciplined as children, because that's what we are. We're children, and children have to be made to conform. Your child isn't just going to obey you because they like to obey you. You're going to have to discipline them. 
You're going to have to cause them to obey you. It's not good enough just to put five rules up on the Johnny's bedroom wall and say, these are the rules in our household, make sure you obey them. How long is that going to work for you? No, sooner or later Johnny's going to look at those rules and go, I don't want to obey them. I'm going to do my own thing. And you can't just walk around your house saying, oh, well, you know, he chose to do something different. I mean, what kind of parent would you, do? Would you be if that's the attitude you would take? In Proverbs 3.11, it says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. See the analogy there? A father must discipline, must correct a child, just so the Lord must discipline and correct his children. We're like children, beloved. That may not build up your ego too much, but that's true. And we need to be made to obey him. We need to be taught to obey. We don't have a bent in us that leads to obedience. We have a bent in us that leads to what? Disobedience. And we're constantly having to be corrected. And if there's no consequence for disobedience, then what? There's no change. If Johnny looks at the five rules on his bedroom wall and says, I'm not going to do that. And mom and dad do absolutely nothing. What do you think? Do you think Johnny's just going to wake up one day and go, well, this is kind of bored now. I think I will follow these five rules. No, he's going to continue down that path of disobedience. In Proverbs 13, 24, or 10, 13, it says, On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. We're not talking about child abuse here. We're talking about discipline. We're talking about correction. Child needs to be corrected. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So youth pastor had run into parents once in a while who we'd have a conversation about disciplining their children. And I was just flabbergasted at some of the approaches they would take. And inevitably, they would come into my office and they'd tell me all this stuff that their child is involved in. And they'd say, we don't know what to do. We just don't know what to do. You know, they're flunking school. They're, they're, they're getting Fs. They're doing, okay, well, tell me what your child does every day. Well, usually he doesn't get up on time because he's usually up the night before. Why is he up the night before? Well, he's just, you know, in his room. What's he doing in his room? I don't know, but I know he doesn't go to bed too late. Does he have a TV in his room? Oh, yeah. Why don't you take the TV out of his room? Oh, I couldn't do that. He'd be mad at that. (laughs) It's like, you know, I couldn't take away their cell phone. I couldn't take away their video game. I couldn't, you know, you want me to forbid him from seeing his friends? Are you kidding me? And then you raise the, the ante to something like, maybe your child needs some discipline, physical discipline. Oh, we, don't, we never hit our children. Well, there you go. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. 
God's word is true, beloved. And once again, we're talking about correction. You discipline your children physically, you do it in love. You don't abuse them. We're not talking about beating them. Proverbs 22.15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Even in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 12, we read, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Why does he do that? Why does God discipline his children? It says in verse 12 of chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 10, excuse me, of chapter 12, it says, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. And then it gives the purpose clause. Why does God discipline us? That we may share in his what? Holiness. That we may share in his holiness. That's why God disciplines us. If God didn't care for us, if God didn't love us, he wouldn't care what we do. Yeah, you want to go wreck your family? You want to go cheat on your wife and abuse your children and, and, and put drugs and alcohol and all this stuff into your body? Yeah, go ahead. I don't care. We don't serve that kind of God. He loves you. He cares for you. So when you start down that path, he's going to provide a way of discipline. If you don't, Heed what he desires you to do. God's discipline conforms us, and he uses the external consequences of our sins, and even sometimes the internal consequences. He can use either one. Sometimes it's pain or it's guilt. Sometimes that pain or, 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 uh, comes from an external place. But God disciplines us to force us into the track of obedience that helps us to conform to his standard of holiness. So we're children. You can't just preach against sin and preach against sin and expect everybody just to turn out holy. No. There has to be a medium. There has to be some way of correcting unholiness. And that's what Jesus is talking about back in Matthew 18. We have a bent toward disobedience in our hearts. We have a bent to disobedience in our spiritual lives. Why is that? Because sin is in us. That's what Paul said. He said, until I get my, my glorified body, man, this, this sin dwells in my flesh. I'm stuck with it. So we have a tendency to drift away from the holiness of God if somehow he does not provide a way of correction, a way of pressure back into the line of obedience. And that's why there has to be enforcement. That's why there has to be correction. I mean, if you never corrected your children please never bring them over to my house to spend the day. I mean, who would want that? If you've never corrected your children, they can do and do whatever they want. I don't want to be around kids like that, nor does anybody else. What kind of parent would you be? Not a very good one. You're there to correct your children, to bring them into the path of correction. 
to live a life that's honoring to the Lord. And you do that because you love your kids. You don't want your kids just to grow up and be wild and running all over the place and misbehaving. I mean, kids are going to be rambunctious. Don't get me wrong. And that's okay. I don't expect your kids to, you know, come to a church service and sit there like little angels. You know, that's fine with me. It doesn't bother me. Kids are kids. But in the grander scheme of things, if Johnny misbehaves in church, Johnny better be talked to after church. Not that it's not going to happen again, but there better be some consequences. Because if there's no consequences, Johnny's going to say, hey, it's okay for me to misbehave in church. Because nobody cares. We're going to look at several elements that Jesus kind of brings out here in Matthew 18. So turn back in Matthew 18, and the first one that I want you to focus on is found actually in verse 17. Because you're talking about discipline, you're talking about correction, you're talking about dealing with sin within the body of Christ. Well, where is this to take place? Let's look at the place for this discipline. Let's look at the place for this correction. It says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the what? Church. That's the second time in Matthew that word is used. In the very next phrase there, and if he refuses even to listen to the church, that's the third time it's used. Ecclesia, those called out, is the idea. It means the assembly. That's the place. Now this is, you have to understand, this is the non-technical use of that word ecclesia for church. What do I mean by that? It's not referring to the New Testament church that was born on Pentecost, because it wasn't born yet. couldn't be referring to that. It may have some inferences to that, but that, that doesn't happen, you know, for, for a couple books here yet in Acts. It does not refer to the church born at Pentecost. That's very important to understand. It's a word that simply means assembly. It means those who know Christ and they've gathered together. That's all it means. It's used elsewhere in the New Testament to speak of the church in the wilderness, referring to Israel as an assembled people of God in the wilderness. It's used in extra-biblical Greek literature, just as a town meeting, get an assembly together. Any group of assembled people, that's, that's the use of this word here, church. It anticipates Pentecost, it anticipates the church that we experience today, but it's not directly relating to that. The root idea here, if you want to totally understand what Jesus is saying, is whenever there's a group of my people who are redeemed by my grace, by my blood, they put their trust in me, that's who I'm talking about. He's not talking about the organized church. He's just talking about a group of people who know and follow Christ, a collection of the redeemed community. In its context, 
Who is he speaking of? Most likely, he's speaking of the disciples that are gathered with him here in this house as he's teaching them. Any group of assembled believers. It's used in the same non-technical sense back in Matthew chapter 16 where it comes up the first time where Christ says, I will build my church. What's he saying? He means that there's a future promise that, you know what, speaking of Pentecost and beyond, I'm going to gather my redeemed people together in an assembly and I'm going to call it the church. That's what he's speaking of. It doesn't refer to the synagogue. Some people say, well, you know, they were Jewish. Maybe it refers to the synagogue. No, it doesn't. Jesus never anywhere was interested in rewriting the rules for the synagogues. He wasn't interested in that. He was interested in giving birth to the New Testament church. He wasn't going to go back and try to redo the synagogue. And even in verses 18 to 20, it couldn't refer to the synagogue because in no synagogue could it be said that they gathered in my name. (laughs) And there I am in the midst of him, of them. The synagogue wouldn't go along with that kind of words. So it isn't a reference to a synagogue, and it isn't a reference to the technical church that we know today. It's simply a general term used of God's redeemed people. Now, you say, well, what what do you make such a big deal about this for? Because I want you to see this truth, and it's very important that you understand this. In verse 17, it says, if he refuses to listen to them, and we'll work our way back from here, it says, tell it to the church. Well, are you saying that then that's when you go to the elders and you go to the pastor? No. That's not what it's saying. There is no organized church. Remember at this point? There's no structure in the church. There's no organizational structure given here. When it says, tell it to the church, it doesn't really say how the church is organized to receive it. It doesn't describe the church. It doesn't say, give it to the guy in charge. It doesn't say that. And then maybe the guy in charge is going to make a committee, you know, we'll call it the disciplinary committee. (laughs) And then they can deal with it. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that at all. It leaves that to each individual assembly of believers and the gifts that they have and the talents that they have as they come together as that assembly of believers. It's simply the church, God's assembled, redeemed people. That's where the correction, that's where the discipline is to take place. I mean, that's what God wants pure, right? Isn't that what he makes a point of in Scripture over and over again? Isn't it Paul that said that he wanted, what he wanted to do was that Christ wanted a, uh, uh, a chaste virgin as a church? In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, Just as a bride and groom come together, so does Christ come together with his church which church he desires, here's what it says, should be holy and blameless, without spot and without blemish. See, it's his redeemed people. And he wants them to be holy, he wants them to be spotless, and he wants them to be without blemish. So that's the context of what's going on here. There's no higher authority than the church. 
You know, you don't go create a group of, of bishops or popes or anybody else and say, well, that's their problem. They have to deal. That's not how it works. That's not God, how, how God desires it to work. That's not how he planned it to work. You deal with sin within the body of the context of Christ's body. You don't go outside that. In Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, he's, he's confronting the Corinthians because they, they started suing each other in civil court. And he had to write them and say, what are you doing? Are you telling me two Christians can't work out these differences? You actually have to go to court over this? That's not right. The context of the Christian fellowship and family is the highest court that there is. And you can read that on your own. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6. And he talks about their implications there. This could be, well, if it doesn't mean the organized church, what does it mean? It could be your care group. It could be your family. It could be a Bible study group. It could be a missionary who's out on the field and he has two or three other people who who became Christians. God is interested in the holiness of all those different groups, not just the organized church. See, and that's where we've become kind of mistaken. We think that, okay, well, we can come to church on Sunday and play all good and, and righteous and holy and stuff, and then we go out and we leave the church and we go out in the neighborhood and we go out in the, the, the businesses and everything, and we live totally contra- contrary to what we heard on Sunday or what we espoused on Sunday. And we think that's okay because we're not doing it in the church. No, it's not okay. You don't think God sees you? When you're at work, or at school, or wherever you may be, he sees you. And he's just as interested as your holiness within the church as he is when you're out in the world doing what he's called you to do. So the place is the church. Secondly, the purpose. Look at verse 15. And this is an important point. Because it not only gives us the place of discipline, which is the church, but it gives us the purpose of discipline. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And then it says this in verse 15. If he listens to you, what's it say? You have, what's it say? Gained or won, whatever your, 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 your translation says. Mine says, gained your brother. What's the purpose of correction? What's the purpose of discipline? The purpose, beloved, of discipline is always, always restoration. It's always restoration. That's the purpose. You don't practice correction. You don't practice discipline within the church just to kick people out. That wouldn't be right. That's not the heart of God. There's a purpose. If he hears you, if you go to him and he hears you, well, what what happens? It says you gained your brother. What did you do? You restored him back to holiness. God has always been concerned with restoration. Proverbs 11.30 says, He that wins souls is what? Is wise. 
What are you doing? You're restoring people into their proper relationship with God when you go out and you tell them the gospel. Even in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, if a brother is overtaken in a sin, if you fall into sin, it says, restore such a one. It doesn't say stone them. It says, restore them. James 5, 19 to 20, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, whoever brings back a sinner from the wandering will, from his wandering will, Save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What's the goal? You're bringing him back. You're restoring him. You're saving a soul from death when you restore that person. And that's always the goal of of discipline or church discipline as it's called sometimes. The goal of of discipline within the church is not to get together and and come up with a a committee of people that goes around and, and accuses people of things and kicks them out. That's not the idea here. The purpose isn't to throw people out. It's to bring them back, to bring them in. That word there, gained, it's a very interesting word in verse 15 where it says you gained your brother you've won your brother it's a word that was used in the marketplace in the commercial world back then it's a word that's used for example to talk about accumulating wealth you gain your wealth gain in the sense of treasure gain in the sense of money or goods or commodities and it's used in this context with this connection if you see a sinning brother What do you look at them as? Do you look at them as a loss of treasure? As a loss of something valuable? That's the heart of God. He doesn't look at that person in a judgmental way. God cannot let one soul go because each of of them is a treasure to him. That should be our heart. And the church has to have that same sense, that same heartfelt care for the souls of men and women. We just can't let them float away. Trust me, over the years that we've been here at Grace, we've seen people come, we've seen people go. And I I can't really say that when people leave this fellowship, that I'm in my office going, can't go right, they left. Praise God. And I'll be honest with you, some of the people that left, you know, we didn't always get along. They didn't agree with some theology, or they didn't agree with the way the elders did this, or the way they did that, or whatever. But I can never, ever say that as the leadership team of this church, we got together and rejoiced when someone left. I can't say that sometimes we weren't relieved. (laughs) But that's probably not even right. But I'm just being honest with you. But the heart of God is, you know what? Don't just let them float away. I care for those people. Now, if people make a decision to leave, they make a decision to leave. I mean, when somebody floats into the coffee shop and, and just unannounced and says, oh, by the way, I want to let you know I'm not coming back to grace. 
okay, is it something somebody offended you? Or, no, 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 just, you know, we're just kind of moving on. And what, what are you to say to that? What can you say? You know, if they're saying, hey, God's leading them down that path, well, then God's leading them down that path. But we should never just sit back and just say, oh, well, what's the big deal? Because you know what? For every person that has left grace over the years, there's always been a loss involved to some degree. It could have been a personal loss. Maybe they were a friend or fellow servant, something like that. Maybe they had a certain gift that was being utilized here or could have been utilized here. So there's always a loss involved when that happens because no son of God, no daughter of God, no matter how weird or bad or messed up their theology might have been, no matter what, is worthless to God. It's just not true. And so when a brother or sister sins, as is in the context here, we've lost them as a treasure to us. Now, I can honestly say most of the people that have left grace have just kind of moved on for whatever. It's not dealing with a sinful issue in their life or whatever that was made evident and then they left. That, that wasn't the case for a majority of the people that have come and gone in this place. But for each one, we saw a loss. We experienced a loss. And so should the body of Christ. I mean, think about it. If, if you had lost a child, something happened. You experience the death of your own child. Having another child doesn't really deal with the, the, the pain you're feeling for the loss of this child, does it? The loss is still there. And so we have to understand that the purpose, the purpose of, of discipline and correction within the church is not to chase people away. Remember, we just came out of this context back in, in verse uh, 12 where Jesus says if a man ha- has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray the key phrase being went astray I mean some people just choose to move on that's fine I mean we're not the only church in the, on the bay on the peninsula here but when someone goes astray or when they're caught in an offense we shouldn't just turn our head the other way and say, I don't want to see that because it could get ugly. Let them go. That shouldn't be our heart. So we, we need to make sure that we understand the purpose of correction. In Galatians chapter 6, it says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. That word restore, it means bring it back to its original condition. It's talking about mending bones and fractures, replacing dislocated bones. It's used of mending fishing nets. Bringing it back to its former condition before it was torn. See, that's the goal of correction. That's the goal of discipline. That's how we're to deal with sin in the church. When we see a person as a treasure... We should be willing to go after them and see people the way God does.
You don't want the idea that you know, we're just here to be nosy in everybody's business and, you know, you don't have the church police and all that kind of stuff. We're not talking about that. That's not honoring to God. But the place is the church. The purpose is to win that person back. And now look at the third thing, and we'll we'll end with this today, the person. Who is involved in this? We saw the place and the purpose. It says, if your brother sins against who? What's it say? You. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. The place is the church. The purpose is restoration. The person, that must be the elders or the the church officials or, you know, whoever in the hierarchy of that. No, it says you. You. That's the, the person who's focused in on verse 15, you. There's not a committee. There's no disciplinary committee. It's you. You might be sitting there saying, you mean me? Yeah, I mean you. <laughs> Well, I I couldn't do that. I'm not a confrontive kind of a person. I'm too loving for that kind of a thing. I couldn't do that. Well, you know what? What you're saying basically is that person doesn't mean anything to you. When you see a brother or sister in sin, or a brother or sister sins against you, and by the way, when you see a brother or sister in sin, they are sinning against you because you're part of the same fellowship. See, this isn't something that's left up for the elders and the pastors to deal with. This is something that you're you're to be on the the front line of this. The person is you. If your brother sins against you. Think how easy it would be within the confines of the church or in the family or anything, really. When someone does something wrong to you, you go to that person, you point it out, and you hash it out and you deal with it. One-on-one, that's it. That's what God's standard is. That's how it should be handled. You know, I'm not sitting up here saying I'm perfect in this area either. I've had my falls and my faults as far as dealing with, with people and things like that. I mean, we all do. Let's just be transparent. But God's standard says, you know what? If someone does something against you, if someone sins against you, you go to them and you tell them his fault. Tell them personally. You don't cower in the corner and say, oh, you know, I've got to tell somebody about this. They, they offended me. And, you know, and then you work your way through the body, wagging your tail about all the sorts of evil that's been done against you. That's not honoring to God. It may make you feel better, but it's not honoring to God. That's not what he says we should do. It says, if your brother sins against you, you go to his face and you tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. It's not for some church official. Matter of fact, in Galatians chapter 6, it tells you exactly who it's for. If a brother is taken in a fault, 
It says, you who are spiritual, you who are walking by the Spirit of God, you who are walking in obedience, you who are in fellowship with Christ, you restore such a one. And it says there, in a spirit of meekness, humility, and love, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. See, you don't go chasing after somebody who's in sin going, oh, this person's horrible. Look at what they're doing. I would never do something like that. Oh, they're ashamed of their family. They're ashamed of themselves. They embarrass themselves at work. Oh, look at that. This is horrible. Let's just get rid of this person. Kick this person out. Time for church discipline. I mean, that's the flavor of a lot of this going on in churches today. And it's not honoring to Christ. It says we should go in a spirit of meekness, humility, and love, lest we also be tempted. You don't do it with spiritual superiority over everybody else. You do it with meekness and love and humility. And it starts with, once again, you. If someone's done something to offend you, you go to that person. Don't come tell me about it. This creates a problem. I mean, think about how this works, beloved. God set this up so perfectly. Say someone does something against you. They say something against you. They offend you in some way. And you're offended and you go to that person and you say to them personally, you know, last week you said this to me in a conversation and it greatly offended me. That's, that's the, the model here. I mean, think of that person says, wow, I had no idea. Beloved, I've had people come to me weeks after something's happened and say, you know, uh, you were in the lobby and we were talking and all of a sudden you just like turned around and walked away. I'm like, I did? Yeah. Somebody called your name and, but you never came back. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even know I did that. I'm sorry. And we dealt with it. But they were walking around with this for weeks. And I'm thinking, and I didn't even know it occurred. You say, well, that's a little inattentive. Well, unattentive. Sometimes that's just, you know, you're called here, you're called there, and you're not paying attention to everybody the way you should. That's just reality. That happens in life. But it wasn't some malicious thing. And so when that person was able to come and, and we spoke about it, it was dealt with and we moved on. And we actually had a closer relationship. Because I was able to tell them, look, if this ever happens again, please don't wait three. Come and yank me away from the other conversation that I entered into, just rudely, totally leaving you there, and, and say, hey, we're not done. I'm cool with that. I'll probably be a little embarrassed because I did that, but you know what? That's fine. You know? Maybe I won't do it the next time. And your relationship is stronger because of that. I think it played out a different way. Oh, somebody offended me. Well, it's, that's, it's just not right. I'm going to go home and tell my wife about this. I go home and tell my wife. And then Tuesday night, the elders mean, i got to tell the elders. Man, tell everybody. I've got to tell everybody. Let everybody know that this person offended me. But I never went to that person and told them. What's going to happen? Eventually, that's going to get around to that person, right? How am I going to look? Not too good. See, if you just go to people when this occurs and deal with it, and none of us are perfect, but that's a standard. You should be concerned enough to confront. If you ignore it, then you're really overlooking 
that wandering sheep. You're, you're giving Satan really an inroads into that relationship with that person. Well, in order to do this, you need three things. First one's willingness. You have to be willing to do it. That's what it says in, in, in uh, the verse there. It says, go and tell it. Go and tell. It says, if, if this is occurring, okay, you see a brother in sin, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go and tell him. Don't go and tell somebody else. You go and tell him. You have to have that willingness. And then in verse 16, Matthew 18, it says, you know what? If he doesn't hear you, then take somebody else with you. First you go and tell. Then you, you take somebody else and you go and tell. And if they still don't hear you in verse 17, it says, then you tell it to the group. You tell it to the assembly. It's not like tattletaling. Because the goal, once again, is restoration. Now, every one of those commands implies a response. If I go and tell my brother who's in sin that he's in sin, hey, this is what I see going on, it it commands a response from them. Either they're going to reject it. If they do, you take somebody else. And if they do, and it goes down the path. And we're going to talk about the process next week. But it's dependent on your willingness to do it. And then secondly, it's dependent on that willingness comes from really a zeal for God and his holiness. You know, you don't wake up one morning and go, oh gee, you know, I'm so willing to go confront people about their sin. Fun, fun, fun. No. But when you see sin going on in the body of Christ, your zeal for holiness and your zeal for God and purity in the church should drive you to be willing to go confront that person in a loving, humble, meek fashion with the goal of restoring that person. I mean, think of John 2 when Jesus went in and started, think of the zeal that he had when he overturned the money changers' tables and and they were selling all this stuff. He made a whip. I mean, you're talking about zeal. I mean, he was intent in protecting the holiness of his father's house. We can't just sit by idly and say, oh yeah, you know, Choir members, they're sleeping together, but I guess nobody really wants to say anything to them or whatever. I mean, that goes on in churches all the time. And everybody just turns the other way like, you know, we can't really say anything. We have to be willing. That comes out of a zeal. And then thirdly, you have to have the personal purity. (laughs) Right? I mean... You know, Matthew 7, he talks about, you know, you can't go confront your brother about the splinter in his eye when you got a hunkin' two-by-four hanging out of yours, right? I mean, that's, that should drive us back to that desire for holiness in our lives. None of us are going to be perfect. None of us have arrived. But when we see a brother or sister sinning, or if a brother or sister has sinned against us, the place of that correction needs to be within that relationship within the body of Christ the purpose is for restoration you don't need to go and and read them the riot act for doing what they did for you you go and you let them know what happened and hopefully that brings out of them a a apology and there's forgiveness and there's restoration and so we need to remember that the person that this is talking about is you the body of Christ. 
We're going to look at the process next week, how this actually fleshes out in the local church. But I would challenge you as the body of Christ here at Grace. As people come and go, don't just turn your head and, oh well, I guess they aren't here anymore. Pick up the phone, call them, tell them you're praying for them, tell them you miss them. We need to be in the process of winning people back into the fellowship. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this section of Scripture that tells us how to deal with sin within our Christianity. And so many times we just close our eyes and pretend it's not there. But Lord, this morning, I know this this week at least, you've definitely confronted me on various issues. And Father, we come back to our inadequacy. Lord, we pray, like the psalmist, search me and, O God, and know my heart. Try me. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Lord, we need cleansing because we've failed. We haven't been willing because we haven't passionately had the zeal for your holiness that we should have. And maybe that's because things aren't right in our own lives as far as our own personal purity goes. May we start fresh today. Make us pure. Fill us with your spirit afresh. Give us that zeal that can come only from you. Let us have that same holy reaction to sin that you have. Keep our hearts tender and gentle and yet willing to confront. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll uh, sing our new song one more one time.